There's a term I use a lot in my depolarization work, which is the fundamental attribution error, which is the idea that oftentimes we attribute our own shortcomings or mistakes to context or to other factors, whereas for others, we attribute it to character. So if I cut someone off on the highway, it's because I really need to get somewhere and it's morally justified in this moment because I know the end game. I know where I need to be and why I need to get there quickly. But if someone else cuts me off, it's because they're just a jerk. They lack character. one person actually make a difference in unifying the entire world? What are some tools I can use to live a life of more freedom? These are just some of the concepts you'll hear about in every episode of See One Beautiful Soul. Welcome to another episode of See One Beautiful Soul. Thanks for being here. I love making these episodes and hopefully penetrating your heart from some beautiful words from my heart and my extraordinary guests. Today, I have Zachary Schaefer. He likes to go by Zach, who is, I want to say a political strategist, but that's not what he does at all. Even though he is changing the political scene by disrupting it with love and joy and cherishing and treasuring all voices. I think you're going to get a lot out of today's episode, and I encourage you to share it with people, especially those who you maybe feel a little shudder when you think of how political they might be. Remember that it only takes a small group of beautiful souls to ignite the beauty in other souls. And don't underestimate just a text or an email or a Facebook post or Instagram post of an episode that you really appreciated, something that spoke to your soul, please share it with other people. And next week, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, June 23rd through 25th, 2021, I will be on Facebook Live in my Facebook group entitled, I am ready to tell my story. So just go to facebook.com backslash groups backslash I am ready to tell my story or search for the Facebook group. I am ready to tell my story. Join us there. Even if you're hardly ever on Facebook, just join us for next week uh, for this free creative writing workshop. I'm very excited to be giving you homework and meeting with you live every day at noon Eastern time. And we're going to be discussing your stories and how to tell them more efficiently. Also, I have a new group starting on Facebook as well. It's exclusive. It's private. It's called Speak My Magic. If you go to speakmymagic.com, we have one for women only. We are going to be starting one for teens. If you know someone who could really use that, you can DM me on Instagram or on Facebook. You can also email me at info at barbheller.com. And I look forward to hearing from you. Zachary, Zach Schaefer, so good to see you and hear you. Absolutely. Thanks for wanting to save and see one beautiful soul. I, I'm going to mess it up. So tell us, what what is your main job? A facilitator, educator, organizer, activist. I, I try to just bring meaning with me everywhere I go. I, I call myself a depolarization educator and a conflict coach. And I was going to say a deregulator, which is kind <laughs> of like what you do, but I was going to botch it. So I'm glad you said that. Okay. So what does that mean? A depolarization specialist? It's very simple. I believe that we're not divided because of our ideological differences or even the extremity of our differences. Um, our polarization, our, our social divisions are contrived. Um, they're a feature of our inability or unwillingness to engage across our differences. 
and they're not an inevitable product of our differences. So what that means is I use tools from social psychology, uh, moral psychology, and other areas to understand what are the cognitive barriers and blocks that we have in talking about our differences and creating relationships across differences and across distances. So I try to bring those sort of psychological tools to the foray, uh, that understanding of just how the human brain works, uh, and to help people create space for conversation and understanding and personal transformation. You know, the ick that gets in the way of actually talking about what matters with people. Wow. And what brought you to that in your life? Like what made you, did you have just really volatile parents? Like sometimes I did. I think I was doing advocacy work and I felt like my mentors were teaching me how to win a conversation. I studied rhetoric as an undergrad. I did mock trial in high school. I was diagnosed with oppositional defiance disorder as a young person. So I've always been driven to sort of conflict and debate. And, And I was doing advocacy work and they were saying, this is how you win a conversation, Zach. And I realized by trying to win all these conversations, I wasn't having conversation. A conversation isn't a duel. And if you're trying to change someone's mind, you can't do that by defeating them, right? By if you win a conversation, that person you're speaking with, your interlocutor, is a loser. And what did you call it? Interlocutor? Interlocutor. Can you break that word down for me? A person who's taking part in a conversation. This must be one of those rhetoric terms that I'm just used to. Industry lingo. If if I'm trying to change your mind, Barbara, and you feel like a loser, that isn't the kind of open space you need to be in to learn or to admit that you're wrong. You're going to get defensive and you're not going to want to feel like a loser or to be a loser. So you're not going to be open to the information I'm trying to deliver. I wanted to change people's minds and I couldn't do that if I couldn't have a conversation with them but where I wasn't trying to win or defeat them. By learning that, I realized a lot of what I care about isn't actually so much about always changing people's minds. But through that process, I was sort of humbled and realized that the conversation itself and the relationship that you can create from it and the solutions that you can find, even if their difference still exists, is much more meaningful than just trying to defeat someone with rational arguments or, or you know, prove to an audience that you're right. Oh, that is so beautiful and heartwarming. I feel like my biggest issue with what's happening today in the news, especially but also just in the political climate and why I really don't like talking about politics and I'd way rather talk about spirit um, is that everyone wants to be right all the time. My group is more right than your group. My vote is more powerful than yours. These people are so wrong. Let's chastise them for it. And now I'm not even going to be friends with you in real life or on these platforms because you don't agree with Mm. this person or that vote or that group that I politicize. It is so off-putting to me. It makes me so nauseous. And I used to call myself apolitical, but I, I don't even use the word anymore. I just like to say that I am spiritual because I see so much crazy on all sides. There aren't really sides, but I see one beautiful soul. I see a lot of crazy. I see a lot of funny. I see a lot of sad. I see a lot of disheartening. Um, So I think you just kind of hit a chord with me and probably a lot of our listeners. Can we, can we find a middle place? Can we find a place of connecting and having a conversation instead of a debate? So let's go back a little bit. Where was that point in your life when you needed to forgive someone? I think the biggest challenge in life is forgiving yourself. And that's um, a daily challenge. 
and and I love poetry and and I think Jared Singer is the slam poet and he has this line how do you forgive yourself for all the things you never said until it was too late that is always been something so powerful for me I think we all hold ourselves to a very high standard and it can be difficult because you are truly the person who knows all your flaws the things you never said until it was too late all the things you said that you shouldn't have the consequences of your actions. There's a term I use a lot in my depolarization work, which is the fundamental attribution error, which is the idea that oftentimes we attribute our own shortcomings or mistakes to context or to other factors, whereas for others, we attribute it to character. So if I cut someone off on the highway, it's because I really need to get somewhere and it's morally justified in this moment because I know the end game. I know where I need to be and why I need to get there quickly. But if someone else cuts me off, it's because they're just a jerk. They, they, they lack character. And we're able to rationalize for ourselves. So I think the two kinds of people in the world are those who, who are able to rationalize and any mistake they make is, is context or is, is someone else. And then there are folks who make mistakes or when they do the wrong thing, attribute it to their character. And you can really fall into a really vicious cycle there. And I think I'm someone who has a tendency to not blame context when I make mistakes, but to look at it from a place of character and to challenge your thought process there and to forgive yourself for that, to, to tell yourself, right, I'm not exonerating myself of any guilt. I'm not just going to blame everything else but me, but I don't have to hate myself for that. I don't have to hold myself accountable in that way for that is powerful. So I think on there's sort of the the large picture of being able to have a mindset where you forgive yourself. Um, and then on a daily basis, when you're living, uh, you know, there are many times throughout the day uh, in, in little ways where, where it's important to forgive yourself and not to allow yourself to build up resentment for yourself. So for me, I would say the 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 challenge is, is often to forgive myself. That was such a beautiful answer. Uh, give it up. If you're listening in the car, pull over to clap. <laughs> because time is relative. So if people are clapping now, it's, it's, it's as if they went back in time. Do you think that that is a huge factor in conflict that has to do with, like, let's say, in the political world, that if people just took a moment, I always thought it would be fun as I was learning more about world politics and visiting India and Thailand and Japan and Hong Kong and, and Israel and Poland, I went to all these places and I remember being like, wow, like in person, it's so different than on the news or in the newspaper back then when people actually read newspapers. And as I grew as a person and kind of came out of my collegiate mind and then where I thought it was so right. And then going into the world and being like, oh my gosh, maybe some of these books I read weren't that helpful for me. Maybe they gave me the wrong idea or a, an idea that could hurt me from understanding other people. I always thought it'd be fun to like have CNN, which is such a widely watched, you know, network have like every night different versions of history <laughs> as opposed to current history, which is a news story it's someone's interpretation of what's going on in the news, right? So I thought, well, if they're going to do 24-hour this anchor's story of what's going on and that anchor's story and this polit politician's story of what's going on, at least give us other context of other people's his or her story, history, her story. Um, you know, I thought that would be fun. So 
now I'm thinking, wouldn't it be neat if some of these older politicians who've been through the rigmarole of I am right, listen to me, vote for my party, we know more than this one, and don't vote for this, and don't do that. You know what I mean? Like Jimmy Carter now, did I make all the right decisions now that I'm super old? Um, No offense, Jimmy. You know, or like Clinton, or if Reagan were still alive. What do you think about that? Do you think that there'd be a lot less strife in the world? I so appreciate that reflection on the human condition. And what I mean by that is I actually think the inability to reckon with our own mistakes and failures and forgive ourselves is the source of so much conflict and destruction in the world. And the reason for that speaks to some of what I was saying earlier, which is that human beings have a fundamental need to see ourselves as good people and to protect our identities. So in in polarization, in that field, one of the things we know is that the brain does a poor job distinguishing mental from physical harm. If I were to hook you up to an MRI machine and hold a knife to you, your physiological reaction would be similar to if I had come into that room and attacked your identity and sense of self. The same defense mechanisms are evoked. So what happens is the brain does everything it can to rationalize your inherent goodness, right? To protect your identity. So it becomes less about what is what is the truth, who is right, and more about protecting one's ego, one's sense of self, uh, the story one has told oneself about oneself. And that's how I define identity, the story you tell yourself about yourself. And you will do everything you can to protect that story. So if you're not able to reconcile, I've done bad, but I forgive myself and I'm still a good person, then you have to deny and hide from all the bad you've done. And it's this fear that grows that if I were to recognize the bad I've done, that might change my understanding of who I am because it's difficult to hold these two truths that I'm a moral person, but I've done horrible things. So instead of holding those two and forgiving oneself for those horrible things, you reject it. And that's when we start to see conflict that can never end. That's when we start to see people or or, or groups or nations that are unwilling to admit the travesties uh, that they've participated in um, because they're not able to forgive themselves for it. And if you can't forgive yourself for the bad that you've done, it's really hard to recognize it um, without rationalizing or just justifying it. Um, And if it's justified, you know, totally justified, you're not actually wrestling with it. Um, you're not you're not asking yourself what more could you do? What responsibilities do you have? So I I think your question is so poignant because if more people were able to forgive themselves for what they've done, it would mean that they're recognizing the harm that they've done. They're going through that Jewish process of teshuvah, of recognizing it, of trying to ameliorate for it, um, of trying to to make amends and fix the damage done. Um, but if if you can't recognize the damage done, you can't hold yourself responsible to it and you can't try to create healing. A, again, a beautiful answer. This is such an enjoyable conversation for me. I feel like I'm eating one of those pudding with uh, like chocolate pudding with cake on the bottom, <laughs> hot, you know, like a molten lava chocolate cake. Um, so as we get deeper in the layers, now I know someone, some, some people who just heard that last conversation are thinking, oh, but my moral relativity is more right than someone else's. For instance, um, let's take Middle East politics. Uh, and you know we were going to go there because that's, isn't that one of your specializations? 
I, I do a lot in the Israel-Palestine space. Okay. Well, we just had uh, two heavy hitting uh, guests come on in a row. So I'm just going to close it up with you. Um, no pressure uh, to kind of make sense of it all because uh, I heard from a wonderful Muslim, Hussein Abubakar, who uh, works for a Jewish organization now, uh, several actually, and he is sort of a reformed jihadist. He was uh, training to become uh, a fighter, a uh, fighter for um, sort of like the jihad nation, if you will. Um, and he decided, I'm going to start asking questions about Israel because why do we hate Jews so much? Um, and so when he started doing that, he realized, oh, I have actually a different fight to, to fight or a, a different love to love. And so he started um, loving Jews and he's actually in Israel right now making peace um, and speaking and, and sharing, which is so beautiful. I mean, it's, it's, it, he has an incredible story and his book is Minority of One. Then we had Rabbi Hanan Schlesinger, who you work with sometimes, and he's a old teacher of mine. I've known him for 20 years and um, he spoke so beautifully and I actually had a transformation while I was listening to him because I was able to kind of put away some of my old beliefs and create new ones. And, um, you know, with you, I'm hoping to find the depolarization <laughs> of kind of those two conversations, not that they're really polarized. I think they're both basically saying the same thing, which is we have to figure out ways of uniting more and fighting less. Um, but my, my listeners I know are going to say, well, my, what I consider to be bad about what my people have done is way less scary than what these people have done, no matter where they sit on the spectrum, right? So my question to you is, how do you deal with that question? Because I'm sure you get asked it a lot. Like, for instance, when we're talking about Hamas throwing balloons over Jerusalem, over a school, and then Israel having no way to fight back because right now there's a ceasefire and you know, they're, they're sparring, right? They're, they're choosing to start it up again. Someone might say, uh, just looking at the headline, shame on Hamas, right? Um, I personally think Hamas is a terrorist organization. And when I read the Hamas charter, my blood starts to boil and I get scared. And it reminds me of the book Mein Kampf by Hitler, where there's sort of like a damnation of the Jewish people. And also the state of Israel is like, not even considered and things like that. So I get really scared and I start to think, well, this is way worse than whatever we've done. How do you fight that sort of opinion? And by saying that, I also want to clarify in case anyone is listening to me for the very first time, I am for human rights, all humans, and including terrorists. I want everyone in the world to have freedom to return to their whole self, organic living, kindness. I want everyone to live free and happy, fulfilled lives. I just want to say that in case someone's like, oh, she said she hates Hamas. She must hate all Palestinians. That is not, that's also like a popular opinion. So I want to just get that out in the open. I am for Palestinian lives. I am for either a two-state solution or a one-state where we're kind of together and dancing. Okay, having said that, it's sad that we have to clarify all these things today. But how would you answer that when someone comes to you and they're like, what this group did was still way worse than what my group has done? How do you answer that? Ooh. Sorry, I am long-winded because I know when people sometimes go back and forth in, a, in an interview setting, they're like, 
what did she mean by that? What did he, what's the real question? So forgive me for being. No, it's the, it's the kind of conversation one cannot enter without a thousand qualifications and contextualizations. <laughs> um, so totally understood. Uh, let's try to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in a couple minutes. Yeah, let's um, do it. I, I'm going to put a, a timer on 90 seconds then. Yeah, that's all it should take. Okay. Um, I have so many thoughts and I'm trying to gather them. And I think one of the things I would say is when we look at conflict, we often look at it from a question of blame and guilt. And that's a really harmful way to understand conflict. Because when you're looking at it from blame and guilt, it again becomes a way to protect one's identity um, and a way to, you never want to be blamed. You never want to have to feel guilt for what you have done the way I like to look at conflict is through contribution. We are all contributing to a conflict. And if I am coaching uh, an employee who is having a conflict in the workplace because of how their supervisor treats them, and they say to me, I've done nothing wrong. Um, My supervisor has been rude to me for the past year and a half. And I say, great, have, have you ever had a conversation with with, with your supervisor about this? And the person might say no. And, and I would say, listen, I, you, you cannot feel any guilt. You do not deserve how you've been treated. Um, and that is not on you. When we want to talk about solutions, we, we want to address this. And that's why you came to me. You want help addressing this conflict. Um, the fact that you did not ever say anything for 18 months of being treated this way may have enabled it in some way, right? This person may not have known that when they didn't call on you in the meeting that you didn't want to be called on. And after never hearing you say you wanted to be called on, they just made us, they made an assumption. And maybe that assumption's unfair, right? Maybe it is their fault. Um, that being said, now that we're talking about solutions, we have to recognize that even if it, one's not at fault, one can still be contributing to a status quo or contributing to a conflict. And one way you may have been contributing to the situation you're in now is that for 18 months, you never voiced a concern about the path that this was going on, right? And we'll often see in conflict, what happens is someone is in a relationship, let's say, doesn't say anything until they burst, right? Husband is working late hours and doesn't come home for dinner. And it's only after a month that their partner is like, finally screams, I haven't seen you in a month. Why are you never home for dinner? And that person is simmering on all of this anger that they've been holding in for a month. Um, and is it their fault? I don't want to have that conversation. Should, should they be blamed? Not the conversation I'm having. Was there silence over that course of a month? Was there waiting until it boiled up into anger, something that contributed to that argument they're now having or contributed to that person not realizing the harm they were doing by working late hours? I would say yes. So I would simply say, even on national conflicts, I'd, I'm, I'm less concerned about guilt and blame and this sort of litigating in a courtroom who's at fault. And I'm more concerned about saying, in any situation in a conflict, there's always passively or actively, each side is contributing to the conflict or to the entrenchment of the conflict or to the stat, to that status quo. And I would simply say, can we look at what those contributions are, self-reflect on those, 
and hold ourselves to the standard, regardless of that other side, that I, we don't want to be a contributing factor to the harm that is happening here. And even if we can't solve the conflict, I can at least reduce the the harm or negativity that I am bringing to it. Okay, so now I'm gonna ask you a more hard hitting question. What do you deem as harm or wrong or bad or evil behavior? And what do you not? Do you have a standard for that? Or is everything like, there's no blame, there's no fault here. It's totally fine to have this or that happen. It's just, you're all part of it. Even if you're just an innocent person on the street and you get hit by a terror attack, you helped. My least favorite comment is when people say, oh, that nothing will ever get solved in the Middle East. It's just, it's been going on for thousands of years. You know, it's like that very ignorant conversation. So do you believe that there is a moral, this is right, this is wrong, or is everything relative? It's a slippery slope to go down, I think, to play the relativity game. And it's also a natural reaction. And I think, again, that's that fundamental attribution error coming into play in a conflict where what I'm doing is deemed necessary because of the context because of other variables, because of the situation I'm in, whereas what the other person is doing is because of their lack of moral character, their lack of integrity. It's because they're a bad person. That is a an error we bring into conflict zones, especially. So for me, I mean, harm is harm. It's hard to argue. One can justify harm, but it's, it's hard to argue on a sort of relative scale. Violence toward a person is not harm or right what is how do we define harm so one can justify it one can contextualize it but i i don't think human rights and violence are are really questions of relativity those for me are observable realities and again one can argue the ends might justify the means but that doesn't mean that that is not taking place and that harm is not being done to the israeli-palestinian conflict i'm jewish i'm pro-palestine i'm a zionist which means i I support and appreciate the Jewish connection to the land and the and the want of self-determination and a homeland in that land. And I say to my Jewish Zionist friends that for me, Zionism was defined by Jacob Klatskin, an early Zionist pioneer, as an aspiration toward morality and beauty. Right? Zionism is people saying for thousands of years, Jews have talked about values and ethics and morals, and now we're putting it to a test. We have a laboratory on a, on a national and even a global scale to show the world what Jewish values are, to show the world what the Jewish people can do, right? To, to create a Jewish state, a Jewish society, not a state of Jews, but a state with a deeply embedded Jewish moral character. Um, so for me, when I look at the conflict, that's why guilt and blame especially when it comes to my own people, my own conversations, is less important than, to me than moral excellence. And this is not the kind of conversation you have in a courtroom because it's not a conversation, again, about I'm not saying is Israel right or wrong. I'm saying I, my mother holds me to a very high standard. Um, I'm her son. She holds me to a higher standard than the average stranger on the street. And I, I feel the same way about people I love and feel kinship with. So me holding Israel, the Israeli people, to a higher standard in conversation with them is different than me casting blame on them or even casting faults on them. That, that, that can also happen, but that's a separate conversation. So for me, I would say to anyone that I love who's in a conflict, I certainly don't want you and you certainly don't want you to be contributing to 
a cycle of conflict, contributing harm to a conflict, or entrenching a conflict that is tangibly harming others. And even if you cannot solve it, even if it's not something that can just be unilaterally solved, because again, conflicts are not a one-person thing, conflicts are always two or more parties. So you may not always be able to solve it, but can you do every, can you put your head on your pillow at night saying, I have truly made no excuses and done everything I can to be morally excellent. And, and that's the hope that I have, um, that Israelis and Palestinians, people and leadership, ask themselves that question. Um, even if they can't, again, solve or end the conflict, am I doing everything I can uh, to achieve justice, even if we'll fall short of true justice? Thank you. Okay. Well, that's that's helpful. I feel like you know, I guess there's a part of me that's looking for more black and white markers of what constitutes good and what constitutes bad. But I think what you're striving to get to is philosophy, morally excellent. I think it's confusing a little bit because I I had this feeling, it was a feeling I got from my grandmother who was raised in an Orthodox home. I grew up very secular Jewish. I think we went to shul once in a while on Rosh Hashanah and then we, I didn't understand a thing. And then we would have, you know, Passover dinner at my grandparents and we'd have Rosh Hashanah dinners and Hanukkah, but I could not tell you any other holidays. I didn't know what Sukkot was, which is so sad. It's my favorite holiday now because I love glamping and it's totally glamping with challah with honey, which is like amazing. Um, My mouth's watering. (laughs) But I couldn't tell you what moral equivalency, what moral ethics uh, what, what was moral as a kid and definitely not what, what Judaism said about morality. I would never be able to tell you. I didn't know what halacha meant. I didn't know what laws were. I didn't know what commandments were at all. You know, then in my twenties, here I am starting to study and go around the world and learn about Jainism and Hinduism and Buddhism. And, and it leads me actually back home to Judaism. And I learned it from this more mystical place with, with Nikubals in Jerusalem. And I'm studying in yeshiva and I'm getting entrenched and become very religious. And now I'm somewhere between how I grew up and, and, and that, that place of like really embedding myself in orthodoxy. And I have to say it was very grounding for me and very helpful to study Judaism from like the 1.0, like the, this is what the Torah says you know, you can interpret it and you can find this rabbi to back this up and that movement to back this up. But there are not just 10 commandments, there are 613. And there's really intricacies, like how you go to the bathroom, how you talk to your parents, even if they're abusive, a million things that are really helpful to at least learn about to say, oh, that sounds like morality. That sounds... Mm. So when I asked you that question, I think I was looking more for, and not that you have to answer this way, and this is, you're free to say whatever you want, but I think that we're, we're really lacking just a sense of what morality is in this generation because everybody is so, well, priests, you know, fondled little boys. So now we're going to get rid of Christian, we're just going to get rid of it. You know, uh, there was a rabbi that was arrested for this. So I don't practice Judaism anymore. Like humans are so fallible. And so many I find of generation Z and now generation alpha are being raised sort of with this idea, like you pick, pick whatever you want. Your parents are like, you know, my mom's Christian, my dad's Jewish. Uh, my grandparents are Buddhist. I'm just going to, you know, do whatever. And that's fine. 
but there's such a watered down intro to this in college. So now I know that's what I did. I studied all these different religions. Oh, I know what this is that I feel like morality, people don't even know what that means anymore. And then we say, well, I follow this influencer because they're so cool and they're a good person. Well, what does it mean to be a good person? Mm. Right. There's um, I'm going to just bring up something a little controversial right now. Um, Red Table Talk, right, with Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith. I think they're so such cool people. And I saw an interview with them that they were interviewing each other about basically having an open marriage, right? So millions of people watch that and they're like, they're good people. That's morality. Do you see what I'm saying? It's like very mixed up. Now, some people might be listening to me right now and saying, well, now I'm going to mark Barb off because she's not into an open marriage. And I like Will and Jada and I, and I think they're really good people and that's morality to me. Let's create a new morality. It doesn't have to have commandments and all. So this is all to say, I think it gets a little mushy when we're talking about how to take the high road because what is the high road? So how do you, how do you, I'm take, pushing you a little further. How do you do that when like, do you have a set of morals and values that you go by besides what your mom is telling you to do? Yeah. I mean, there are, I have a background in rhetoric, so I am philosophically inclined. So I exist in this sort of abstract and there's different, I mean, there's different ethical outlooks on the world. There's deontologists who are absolutists who say there's right and wrong and you only ever do what's right. You never do what's wrong. Murder is wrong. You never do it. There's no excuse. There's consequentialists who say the means can justify the ends, right? The actions you take should be determined by the consequences of those actions. Um, a deontologist might say, a strict deontologist, you never torture, torture is bad. A strict consequentialist might say, if torturing someone can save a hundred lives, that's the moral thing to do. Um, right, A utilitarian person would look at how many units of good or happiness right, that any action would bring into the world. So there's, there's different sort of philosophical outlooks. And I think the answer, of course, is don't be strictly any of them and you know, find the shades in between. Um, and in terms of then how that manifests, how do you live your life that way, right, I, I understand that can then be, be difficult. Um, and, and in some ways, I'm a progressive who, when I see injustice, it's very clear. And while I exist philosophically in this abstract space, when I see someone suffering, uh, I'm very allergic to folks who try to rationalize that injustice or suffering um, or try to you know, morally justify it. Um, I've spent a lot of time in the West Bank, Palestine. I've been to Palestinian refugee camps. I have Palestinian friends who've experienced horrors at the hands of, of the Israeli government, the Israeli army. Um, and I've, I've seen the pain, the injustice um, that many Palestinians are experiencing. And it breaks my heart as a human being. It breaks my heart that the folks who are causing this directly and indirectly have a star of David patch on their uniform, right? Is, is the necklace that I'm wearing around my neck. Um, and on the one hand, I can look at it in a grand scale. Um, I can really zoom out 
And I'm very articulate in the conflict and the history, the history of Zionism and anti-Semitism and how the Israeli-Palestinian conflict started. And, and I can understand all of that and sort of put this place in that arc where it makes sense how we got here and how different sides are contributing to it. Um, but when I just zoom in and I just live in that experience, I'm angry. I'm full of righteous indignation um, and hurt. Um, and then I have to reconcile those two, right? Some understanding of how we got here with the injustice that I'm seeing and the discomfort with the status quo and knowing it has to change and knowing that again, even if I know that the Israeli government might not be able to solve the conflict today, there is much more that they can do to ensure that, that my Palestinian brothers and sisters are experiencing less pain, more freedom, more opportunity, and more prosperity. And that's why when you talk about blame and guilt, the conversation falls apart because there's either one side to blame or there's one side that's guilty. If, the, if you're not guilty, then you're not responsible is usually the connection that's made. But for me, responsibility has nothing to do with guilt. It's, it's, it has to do with moral excellence. I don't look at responsibility being what harm have I caused directly that I must solve for as a sort of going down. I see responsibility as, as, as aspirational, as aiming up. What damage is in the world that I have the capacity to ameliorate or to fix. And that's why when I look at contribution, how can we contribute more or what are we doing that is contributing harm that we might be able to release some, some of that harm? I don't know if that helps to answer it. It's like, how do you choose what your moral excellence is? Is it just about justices in the world and, and, and groups of people fighting injustice when it happens to their own people or another party? Is, is it something more? Is it like a philosophy that you follow? Because you basically were just talking more about, you know, people that like how they view morality uh, as a whole. But what morality would you pick? I, I'm assuming you pick Judaism because you mentioned you wear a Star of David and you are sad when your own group that you feel a kinship with is doing the wrong thing. But I'm asking you, like, where do your morals come from? I'm just being really direct. Yeah. Um, I mean, a mix of Judaism and philosophy. And I think what's beautiful about Judaism is it's a yes and moral philosophy. And it is, it, there's a huge tension you always wrestle with and you're forced to ask questions. So it's not an easy moral philosophy. Yeah, I remember Soloveitchik, who is the founder of like Yeshiva University and like, if you will, the modern Orthodox movement, which I feel like I'm mostly aligned with, even though I'm a progressive modern Orthodox traditional Jew, I think. I don't know, Ashkafardic, whatever. <laughs> That's what David Suisa calls me sometimes, even though I'm completely 100% Russian Jew. So I am Ashkenazi by blood. I love that he once said the Torah is the clay and the secular studies and philosophies are how are the chisel. Mm. And I'm kind of botching the, the quote, but I remember reading that and I was like, oh, that so justifies me, you know, learning more about mindfulness and Buddhism and also teaching the arts. Because I find when I go to see a show, like when I saw Dear Evan Hansen or Aida with Heather Headley on Broadway, I remember being like, this is such a religious experience. It felt to me as moving as like high holiday services, you know, in a synagogue or if not more, because I was like so connected to every sentence they said on stage. Anyway, I, I totally agree with you and I don't mean to push you. I'm sorry. I just- No, and I would just say like Judaism for me is very justice centric and it's very much about human rights. Like it's the idea, no human is a slave. We're all created in the image of God. We rest one day a week because we are not just 
machines that work. We are humans who have an inherent dignity, an essence of the divine that must be respected and embodied. How do you feel about the new Israeli government that was just elected, Naftali Bennett, you know, taking on the reins after this 12-year, 13-year, according to some, Bibi Netanyahu stay in the Knesset? Yeah, the coalition is so awkward and incoherent and inspirational and interesting. Um, it, it could not exist anywhere else on the planet, quite literally. As you know, it's the far, it's the secular far left to the religious far right with Arabs and Muslims and Islamists in between. Like it is just an absolutely incoherent group of people, um, which is so inspiring that that happened. And they were energized by a, a thrust to get Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu, the former prime minister, out of office. The question is, they've now succeeded and they're now in charge. Um, what are they going to be able to accomplish together, given how little they actually share? Um, and that'll be an exciting test. Um, and I think, like, much to Israel's credit, what an incredible coalition that came together. Um, and the question will be what they're able to accomplish now and, and what can be done with it. So I'm just watching eagerly. I feel the exact same way. I think it's a total embodiment of seeing one beautiful soul. I think they actually have more in common uh, than maybe we all give them credit for, which is they're all souls that just want to go to sleep at night with a family mm-hmm. and feel safe and comforted. We all really do want peace. I once heard, um, I think it was Rabbi Aaron, who's been on the podcast, and he's the reason I started the podcast, and my rabbi, uh, David Aaron. So he once told me that peace is not being quiet. It's actually not that all. If you look at the sheen, which is the Hebrew letter that looks like almost like a W, and there's like the center one is like for God, and here's me and here's you, or here's me and here's the other, right? Or here's you and the other. As long as you can see the godliness in each other, then you have true peace. And it's not about being silent. It means I get to say my peace and you get to say your peace. And together we make harmony versus, oh, I'll just be quiet. No, I'm not, you know, because people, peace, just <laughs> Anyway, so give us some tools because you're so special and, you know, have this sort of like delicious abstract view of the world. What are some things we can say, we can develop habits for, we can take action with every single day to uh, lessen conflict in our lives, depolarize ourselves <laughs> from one another? Yeah, I have first, I love the, the use of the word delicious. And what you said just reminded me of Martin Buber, who famously wrote the book, I and Thou. Um, And he talks about the, you know, one encounters the divine when you truly encounter the other. Um, I and thou, I and you. Um, And if we want to like go with Kant, Kant talked about the need to always treat humanity um, as a person and not as an end, as a person and not as a mean. A means to an end is the end today. It's like people are like, oh, you're friends with me, come join this group. You're, you know, oh, you liked this post that I have? Here's my ebook, right? Everybody's an end. Oh, that's my rent right there. I'm going to market myself. I'm going to brand myself. We make fun of this on Clubhouse all the time. And I actually started a Clubhouse room about that called Horrific Life Coaching, where all we do is just everything's a sale. And it's, 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 it's a joke. It's a comedy room. But I do it to get out my heebie-jeebies about how the world is becoming. Anyway, keep going. I apologize. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's... It's really semantics about how maybe you define the word means and ends. Um, 
But like, I think what Kant and Buber and, and many others were saying um, is that, right, when, he, when they say human beings are not just a means, but an end, I, I find that we instrumentalize humans. We see them as instruments for something, right? The cashier is not a human being. They're the person checking me out. They're the thing checking me out. They're not the, a, a human that I need to look in the eyes and see the humanity of. They're the recipient of my credit card. They're the thing that hands me the receipt. And they're the robot that puts the food in my bag. The person that cuts you off on the highway is a jerk in a 2,000 pound metal machine, not a human being trying to go somewhere. Like we never realize when we are sitting in traffic, everyone else is also sitting in traffic. It's so trite and banal, but the capital T truth of the world that we don't live by is that humanity of the other. Um, and that they're not just there to be instruments for ourselves. They're not just there as objects for ourselves, um, but they too are human beings who hurt and love and fear just like we do. That's like the sort of eternal truth that Judaism brought to the world. Aristotle, if we want to talk, philosophers said people are born gold, bronze, or silver. Some people are born slaves. And Judaism said, no, we're all born in the image of God. We are all born equal as human beings that are infinite. That's a sort of truth that we never recognize. And that's that fundamental attribution error um, where we sort of recognize that for ourselves or maybe for our loved ones, but we don't recognize that for the person who cuts you off, for the people we don't like or the other. My old roommate, Brienne, shared this with me and I had been doing it, but she did it really well. She'd have these long commutes. She is a college professor and she would go really far every day, like hours and hours in the car in the LA area. And she would just pray for people as she drove by them. Like I prayed mm. that person uh, I don't know his name, but, you know, with the baseball cap on, she would like single out people and just kind of take them in because she'd be sitting next to them in deadlock traffic for 10 minutes, 15 minutes. At a, you know, I pray that they're having a good day. And if she, she saw two people arguing in the car, what looked like an argument, you know, please help them with their shalom bite, their their peace at home. Um, and it mm. really got to me. And I, I've always practiced road love instead of road rage. Like if someone comes, huh? like, oh, you're having such a hard day. No, 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 go, go. It's okay. Sometimes I'll actually roll the window down and say, are you okay? And then there you go <laughs> like this weird 3d conversation like with our body move and they recognize in that second out of their stupor oh my gosh she's a person and then they drive away and i have no idea what the after thing is but in the moment they get stunned because they're in that stupor of i hate everybody on this street <laughs> and i'm sending them love and they can feel it like that is the most inspiring thing in the world people aren't used to that and I think the beauty is like, that's true freedom. We have the freedom to choose how we engage with the world. We have the freedom to uncover meaning in the world as we see fit and to construct meaning in the world. When I'm walking down the street and someone is loud or annoying or asking me for money or whatever, I live in New York City. So like name something annoying that someone can do and it happens to you on the way to the subway. <laughs> I can choose to be ticked off by that. And it's actually a choice to, or I can choose to respond in another way. I can choose to smile at that person, to love that person, and to not just see them as an obstacle in my way to the subway. So in the sort of like spiritual sense, to your point, it can be praying for that person. In the literal sense, it can be letting that person cut you off, just actually, you know, slowing down your car and letting that person go. It will eliminate so much of your resentment for the world.
we all know those people who get like ticked off when someone cuts them off on the subway. And it's the first thing they tell you when they get out of the car and dinner, they're still talking about it. And that creates resentment is eroding your own soul. Or you can say to your point, gosh, I hope that person's okay. I hope they got where they were going. God forbid they were rushing to the emergency room to see someone they love who was just injured. We get to choose what we focus on and the meaning again, that we construct in the world. There's a spiritual benefit for yourself. If you believe there's a spiritual benefit for others and it can change your relationship to the world in, in really tangible ways. And it can bring more joy and love to other people in a really tangible way. Last question. One key to freedom you wish everybody knew. You, you've talked to so many different people on the ground all the time about the Middle East conflict and other really, really big conflicts in the world. What's something you wish everybody knew they could do at all times? Realize you don't truly understand the other. Who they are and even what they mean and what their agenda is. So when someone comments on your social media post or Facebook post and says something, before you respond, actually tell yourself, I don't know what they mean by this. I don't know what their goal is with this. And I don't actually know deep down who they are. And I'm going to ask. You will be amazed the influence you can have on that person, how wrong you were about them in the first place. I've learned this the hard way because I would respond to what people said before I understood it or before they understood what they were saying. And by just asking questions, I've avoided arguments because I found out we're actually closer together than we thought we were. Oh my God, that's so beautiful. And I started doing that, well, probably out of the womb. <laughs> when I was in fifth grade, there was a girl, I won't say her name in case she ever hears this, but I was not popular until I got to high school from K through eight, grade eight. Um, I was the person who, like that's kindergarten to third grade. No one was really popular or nerdy, but I was so nerdy. Like I would just go up to people very vulnerably and say, are you mad at me? And I remember in fifth grade when people were really becoming more hormonal and, you know, girls were starting to wear bras and liked, like boys didn't have cooties anymore. They just, you just had a big crush. Um, I went up to this one girl who like was ignoring me and I could feel that she, I, there was this weird tension between us. And so I went right, I have no problem with conflict. I love, I love sharing so that we can you know, create a new world. And I always felt that way since a young age. That's probably why I have a podcast on it. I just loved having these kinds of conversations. And so, and when I met you, I was like, oh, what a me. Okay. We, we like to ask questions instead of having all the answers. So um, I went up to her and I said, would you let me know, 10 years old, keep this in mind. Would you let me know if I ever say or do anything that hurts you? Because I want to know, because you're like my friend and I really care about you. Oh. He never spoke to me again. Like ne never talk to me again. I think I was too much for her because I, I, maybe she was abused as a kid. I don't know who knows what her, but it was like too much. <laughs> I'm often too much for people. If that's the question. Absolutely. <laughs> maybe you should have a podcast. Ah, that's what we are. All the podcasters are like, I'm too much for everybody on one-on-one. -on -one, so I'm going to talk to a lot of people at once. Exactly. That's what it is. And then we get to meet cool people like you. Anyway, this has been so delightful, delicious, delectable. Mm. And um, just, it gives me so much hope to know that, I think you're our youngest guest so far. Not that it matters how old people are, but I know you're in your 20s, right? 27, I think. I think. Yeah. Well, in like, <laughs> When you get to be my age, you just... 107. Yeah, exactly. But... um it's just so great to talk to you. You give me a lot of hope and um, I'm really inspired and I hope other people are inspired by what you said too. 
And I'm excited to put this out there and, and let people hear this conversation. And hopefully, if nothing else, it will inspire other people to ask more questions and have these kinds of conversations. How can we get in touch with you? What can we do to just get to know you more? I honestly have nothing to promote. I have a website, Facebook, I have a Twitter, like become my friend, get in touch with me and let's be friends and make the world a better place together. And thank you, Barbara. Like we had such a lovely meeting a few weeks ago and you were such a gorgeous soul uh, and you, you're, you're trying to bring so much light into the world. And, and that is such a commitment for, for someone to have. And we need more of that. Oh, you made me cry. You got me all choked up. Well, uh, I guess like attracts like, and you know, you only see that little piece of me cause you have it in big time. Z-A-C-H-A-R-Y-S-C-H-A-F-F-E-R. If you just Google my name, I should come up on Twitter, Facebook, or Zachary Schaefer or ZachSchaefer.com. Amazing. And I still hold this dream since I met you a couple of weeks ago that we will be with my camera and a microphone together asking people things on the street because that's my favorite way to make documentary. It would be so much fun to ask people questions. I am I want, in. Please, I want to ask questions with you. I want to ask questions with you. Okay. Well, then it's a date. I could be your mom. So this is not a weird, like, (laughs) like, I want to ask questions with you. No, it's more like, I want to change the world with you in a non-sexual. I want to meet strangers with you on the street and ask them questions. Amen. Uh, Have a wonderful Shabbat. And thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Shabbat Shalom, Barbara. Okay. So here are some golden nuggets of wisdom to take away from my conversation with Zach Schaefer. The fundamental attribution error is when we attribute our own mistakes to context versus our own character. We rationalize our own actions, but we hold other people accountable in a different way, and we attribute their mistakes to their character. It's like morally justifying our own actions, but not others. Zach said that he was doing advocacy work, and he kept hearing his mentors tell him to win a conversation— until he realized that a conversation is not a duel. It is just that. It's a conversation. No one wins it. People just spend time listening and sharing, hopefully, from their hearts. If you're trying to change someone's mind, you can't do that by defeating them. It's probably also not a great objective to change someone's mind, maybe to inspire them to see things a new way and in incorporate that to how they see things. The relationships and solutions you can find even when there are differences still in existence is much more meaningful than just trying to defeat someone or prove them wrong. Identity is a story that I've told myself about myself. If I recognize the truth I've told myself about myself, then I have to forgive myself or I reject it and pretend that I'm perfect. That's when we start to see conflict and that will never end participating in travesties without even knowing it, justifying what you or your one group that you identify with or multiple groups that you've identified with are doing as a whole and not wrestling with it day to day. If more people were able to forgive themselves for what they've done, then they could actually recognize that they've done harm and start to create real healing. When we look at conflict, we often look at it from a question of blame and guilt and a way of protecting our own identity. You never want to feel guilt for what you or someone you're associated with may have done. What if we look at things from a place of contribution? Even though one may not have initiated the conflict or caused quote unquote harm in the same way as someone else, 
you may be very well contributing to a particular situation without even knowing it just because you've allowed it to happen for a very long time. This is one of my favorite definitions of Zionism, and it's by Jacob Klatskin. That's spelled K-L-A-T-Z-K-I-N as in Nancy. Zionism is an aspiration towards morality and beauty. And finally, you may not be able to solve all the world's problems or come even close, but if you can put your head on the pillow at night and say, I have done all that I can to be morally excellent today and to achieve justice in my own way, then you're going to be contributing to something really beautiful. And you could be affecting every single person that comes into contact with you or at least with your energy in a myriad of ways, and you could be inspiring them to do the same. I wish everyone shalom, salam, that means peace in both Hebrew and Arabic, and I give us all a blessing to take Zach Schaefer's lead and do our best every day to strive a little higher for our own moral excellence. If you know somebody with a great story about forgiveness, failure, or freedom, please share them with us. If you learned something new or feel like something from this episode can inspire someone else, please share the episode on your Facebook page or Instagram and tag that person and tag us too. You can find all of our social medias, drop us a note, or join our newsletter at www.c1beautifulsoul.com. Please don't forget to subscribe and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you hear podcasts. May we all choose to look for the light in ourselves and each other in all ways, always. Always.